As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 886. John chapter 1. For the last several weeks, we have been looking at the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, and it's a gift to us in a lot of ways that it helps us to slow down in what is always a very busy time for us, um, to quiet our hearts, to be reoriented to the story of all stories, the story that is meant to shape and define the whole world, the story that's meant to reorient our worship. And um, it's mornings like this morning that I I feel um, both extremely hopeful because this message itself is the power of God to change lives. Um, And then I also feel incredibly (laughs) inadequate because um, human language is limiting. My vocabulary is limited. My knowledge of this topic is limited. And so there's always this way that we have to look at the scriptures and we have to slow down and and ask God to speak. And and sometimes um, there's just not a whole lot of illustrations out there um, to be able to illustrate God becoming flesh. And so um, one of my favorite, though, people to help understand this is C.S. Lewis. And towards the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, he has a a phrase in the last battle that Lucy speaks. And she says, once in our world, a stable had inside it something bigger than our whole world. And that's, that gets at the infinite God taking on flesh in a finite way, in a time, in a place, in a space. And if we're honest, this topic um, oftentimes can escape us, right? I mean, the hustle and the bustle can drown out this song. Even though the whole season is about this message, it's very easy for us to be filled with other things. And the reason that it's so easy to miss the meaning of John chapter 1 and the meaning of Christmas, even for people of faith, is because um, in Christmas, God is answering a question that most of us are not asking, right? God is 
In his infinite wisdom, God is an expert at answering questions that we don't even know that we need to ask. And he answers those questions in ways that we could never imagine. And then as we deal with the simplicity and the complexity of it, he actually changes us in ways that are undeniable. Right, So I'm not going to try to water down the complexity of some of the things that we're talking about this morning, um, but I hope as you come in contact both with the personal nearness of God and the transcendent God that took on flesh, that somehow that it meets you right where you are. And I, I just can't shake this impression that I had during worship, that this message is itself powerful. Like it is spoken to people that need rescue, right? I mean, it's, it's spoken to people that are being oppressed. These are a group of people at this time that were oppressed by the Roman government because of their nationality, because of their heritage, because of the way that they chose to live out their lives. They were oppressed, right? And deeper than that came the oppression of their own sin. And so the, the thought that keeps running through my mind as I'm looking out at all these faces that I love is that there's real freedom here. Like there's real freedom in this message from the oppression of sin. Because apart from this message that we're going to look at this morning, I mean, there really is no hope for us, right? So everything that ails you, everything that tempts to rob you of joy, that tempts to rob you of peace, everything finds its answer and its solution in God speaking and God becoming the word that becomes flesh for us in the person of Jesus. So it's a message of freedom. It's a message of real and lasting righteousness. It's spoken to a group of people who were burned out trying to clean themselves up, right? Trying to play the religious game. So most of them tapped out and said, I'm not going to do that anymore. But in the midst of that, God provides a righteousness that's outside of them, a righteousness that will not perish, that will not fade, that will last forever, and it comes through Jesus. John chapter 1, it reorients us to the truth that no matter how good our intentions are and our plans for the world, that salvation is outside of us, right? Um, And that's good news for a group of people that barely can get themselves out of bed most mornings, right? That salvation and the hope of the world is outside of us. It has to do with God himself taking on flesh and entering into our story. And this story is meant to capture our hearts and it's meant to fill us with wonder um, because God is the one that's doing this. He's the one that's taking initiative, right? I mean, this is even a group of people that's actually looking for him. It's a group of people that think that God has given up on them. And it's at that point that God enters the story. Tim Keller, he helps us kind of recover a sense of wonder when he says, I would go so far as to say that this perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. What is Christianity? So, if you think Christianity is mainly going to church, 
believing a certain creed and living a certain kind of life, then there will be no note of wonder and surprise about the fact that you are a believer, right? And I would say that that is the predominant experience of church in the South. There is a lack of wonder because people think, I've done this. I'm the one that showed up. I came to church. But then he goes on to say, if someone asks you, are you a Christian? You will say, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. Why do you ask? Christianity is in this view something done by you. So there's no astonishment about being a Christian. However, if Christianity is something done for you and to you and in you, then there is a constant note of surprise and wonder. So this morning is a about you breaking out of the religious box that makes you think that being a Christian is all about you and it's all about your performance and it's all about you coming before God and you having it all together and it's about the God that came into the world to save you and to be with you and to enter into your story and to save you because of him, not because of you. That helps us to recover a sense of wonder. That's why every time that we're encountering this story that people are singing and angels are rejoicing and shepherds are filled with fear and awe and and angels long to look into who are these people that God is longing to save? What's going on in this story? That's a little bit of the mystery that we're bumping up into in our Weakness and our finite mind, something that's bigger than our whole world, is meant to speak and change our whole world. So, with our best attempt, we're going to look at John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 14 through 18, and we're going to ask God to fill us with a sense of awe and wonder. So, if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read John chapter 1, verses 14. Through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, so much... We want you to perform this miracle. We want to see with new eyes. We want you to reorder our world. 
We want you to reorder our hearts. We want you to help us to see where things have become foggy and unclear. We want you to burn away the dross that keeps us from seeing and feeling and rejoicing in the truth that you've drawn near to us. I pray that somehow you would use this text to rejoice our hearts that you would help us to see our lives and this planet in a new way. I pray that you would release real power for circumstances that are beyond ourselves and that we would find fresh hope in who Jesus is and what he's done. To do that, we just need you to send the Spirit to open our eyes, to help us to respond in worship. I need your help to help me proclaim this word. Father, you know how limited I feel in texts like this. I pray that you would help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Verse 14 simply is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Um, You cannot overstate its importance and what it means for us. And so we're going to spend a lot of time this morning just trying to allow this particular verse to press down on us and to help us to understand what God is really like. Um, what we see in verse 18 is that, that Jesus actually makes God known, that he wants us to know him. But to do that, we have to look at who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's look at verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, I mentioned this in the introduction. The the incarnation is God's answer to our deepest questions. It's questions that we all have. It's questions that we probably wrestle with if not on a daily basis, at least on a weekly basis. It's the questions that the world is asking. And, I mean, honestly, the idea that God, who is the Word, who is Jesus, takes on flesh, it is an absolutely category-expanding, mind-blowing experience. I mean, this is written to a group of Jewish believers Uh, or Jewish followers um, that were, I mean, they had their whole world rocked before them. Um, They witnessed utter devastation. The Romans came in and they were killing um, their family and their friends. And this message comes to them and lets them know that the God that seems to be far off, the God that seems to be distant, the God that is invisible, the God that is spirit, actually takes on flesh and dwells among them. For them, this would have been a mind-blowing statement. And, and I just want to say this from the outset. Like, if there are not moments consistently in our lives when we look at who God is and He blows our minds and expands our categories, we're simply not looking at the God of the Bible, right? I mean, this God who... I remember studying this for the first time, being about a 20, 21-year-old young man, and I was studying a a theology book, and for the first time I understood that Jesus and the Incarnation, He was 100% God, 
and 100% man. I mean, most of the time, like when I had grown up in Sunday school, like I would see Jesus perform these miracles and kind of walk on water. And I would say, well, what do you expect? I mean, that's what God would do, right? But then when, when I was able to think that, that God took on flesh and he was 100% human and he lived out his life as a human and he ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit as a man, it absolutely expanded my mind to see, oh my gosh, that he would come into the world and that he would take on flesh as a little vulnerable baby. That's why there's real drama in the Christmas story when Herod is chasing after and wanting to kill Jesus, right? I mean, this is, he's a vulnerable little baby and all of those things so that he can identify with us all of those things so that he can save us and all of these things so that he can let us know that he is near so the incarnation answers the deepest questions that we have in our lives and the first question that it answers for us it's the same question that the original recipients would have had is where is God right? Where is God? Especially in times of devastation, especially in times of suffering. Where is God in the midst of all of this chaos? Where is God in the midst of all of this suffering? Where is God in the midst of all of this evil? Now, statistics, it depends on how you ask the question, says that Nine out of ten people believe in some form of God. Um, That could just be a higher power, something to give purpose and meaning to your life. But the prevailing view of God is that if there is a God, He's at best mildly interested in our lives, right? That He maybe intervenes like in really important things like elections or something like that. I mean, I read something like that this week. That's goofy. But anyway, um, <laughs> but that God himself would enter into our story. Most people think that God is far off, that God is distant, that he is uninterested in the details of their life. And the incarnation is God saying, I am personally vested in the lives of human beings. I find human beings supremely valuable. I find them worthwhile. I enter into their story. Where is God? He has drawn near in the person of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? So that you and I, in moments of despair, discouragement, discomfort, can draw near to him. Where is God? God enters into the story so that we can draw near. He took on flesh because he actually wants to be with us, right? And there's no greater message that people inside the church need to hear that God actually wants to be with you, right? Um, If you were reading this um, in the original Greek, um, what would come to mind most often is this word, that God dwelt among his people. It's the same word that they use for the tabernacle, that Jesus literally tabernacled or dwelt with his people, that he took up residence with them and among them. So their minds would have been filled back to the Old Testament where the people of God were wandering in the wilderness, right? They had escaped slavery from Egypt and 
you know, every so often, I mean, these people, they could only travel so far in a day. They would set up camp and there would be tents all around for millions of people. But do you know whose tent was at the center of all of those people? It was the tent of God. It was the tabernacle because God has always wanted to be with his people. Now, in the Old Testament, there were some uh, regulations about who could draw near and when they could draw near. But the message of the Bible is that God actually wants to be with people. And the incarnation is is the loudest possible statement that God wants to be with people. So let that speak to your loneliness, right? If you think you have been forgotten, if you think that you are alone, the incarnation is God's loudest possible statement that he has drawn near, right? Just as we read in worship, that means we don't have to hide anymore. He came looking for people that didn't have it all together. So that's not the basis on which he welcomes us and pursues us. Where is God? God has entered the story so that people like you and I can draw near to him. The greatest gift of the incarnation is that the presence of God is no longer relegated to a temple somewhere, that Jesus himself becomes the temple, and now through the Holy Spirit that we get to be the temple, that the presence of God dwells with us forever. That's the gospel. The incarnation says, where is God? And so when people step foot into a church service, when people say, God is surely among them because the Spirit testifies to the reality of who Jesus is. When we scatter from here and we begin to care for other people, where is God? He has taken up dwelling among his people and his presence endures with them. That's the good news. So where is God? It answers that question. The second question that it answers is, are human beings valuable? Not just are human beings valuable, but Am I valuable? The incarnation says that people matter to God. So when you think about the worth of a human soul and a human body, with things like Aleppo in Syria and end-of-life issues where people are wondering about the value of a life where it's cheaper to take a life than it is to save a life. When we're talking about abortion, when we're talking about immigration issues, when we're talking about racism and caring for the poor, what we're asking in those moments on all of those stages is, what is a human being worth, right? And in American terms, what we're saying is, is it economically feasible for us to actually care for people? So we're placing a monetary value on what it means to care for people. God is saying through the incarnation that people are infinitely valuable to him so much so that he would enter into the story and be a part of their lives. But so we have this question, is, are people valuable on this massive scale? But then all of us on an individual basis, right? We wonder on a day-to-day basis, am I valuable? We look for anything and everything to validate us whether it's our jobs and our careers, whether it's our family, whether it's our children's performances, whether it's the clothes that we wear 
you know, the neighborhood that we live in. We look for all of those things to give us worth and value. And what the incarnation says is that God has made the definitive statement about your worth and your value by coming into the world to save you. So you no longer have to look to something outside of yourself, outside of God to find your worth and value. You can find your worth and value in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that has come to you. And we have this wonderful picture of Jesus in the scriptures who comes and gives us a better way to be human, right? It says that verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So Jesus gives us a better way to be human. So how does God relate to people? How does God relate to people? Well, we see how would God respond at a dinner party, right? Jesus went to all the wrong kinds of parties with the wrong kinds of people. Why? To show that all people matter to God. How would God respond at a funeral? John chapter 11. He would weep his eyes out and then he would provide a better way of escape by raising Lazarus from the dead. How would God respond to a woman that's caught red-handed in the act of adultery. John chapter 8, he would say, you without sin, you can cast the first stone. And then he would allow her to find mercy and grace in his performance for her because he laid down his life for her so that she could find escape from the penalty for her sin. How would God respond? How would God live out life? We have that in Jesus. We also have Jesus validating all experiences in life by becoming human, right? Super religious folks, like they just want to like, they want to truncate life down to like, if you just read your Bible and pray, those are the only valuable things about being a human. Yeah, maybe going to a church service every once in a while. But Jesus lived 30 years in obscurity. And you know what he did? He grew up. He learned things. He had relationships. He had friendships. He had a vocation. So Jesus' incarnation gives value to all of life. So you don't have to just have these few activities that are considered spiritual to be human. No, Jesus becoming a human validates all experiences. He validates what it means to live life before God. So Jesus validates human, but he also redeems it so we see a better way. And then, um, I would like you to read this at a certain point, but John chapter 9, he helps us understand God's perspective of suffering people. Right? This is a major question that most of us have. What about suffering and evil? There is a, a blind man in, in John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, Jesus uses this man who has never seen the light of day, who has never looked on the face of another human being. And, I mean, really, and this is the the question that most of us ask. Um, His disciples asked him, John chapter 9, verse 2, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right? That's moralizing suffering, right? We, we, say, we think that suffering, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. 
And Jesus answered, It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. And so what Jesus does is take suffering out of a moral category and say, my mission actually is to come into the life of suffering people. And so that informs how we enter the world, right? We come as the people of God into people's story to bring the healing and the wholeness of Jesus, Right? We don't have to say, are they there because this is their fault? Or are they there because that's their sin? No, our job, following in the footsteps of Jesus, which is a better way to be human, says, I want to enter into the suffering of other people and I want to see the healing and the wholeness of Jesus made manifest. So Jesus helps us to answer questions. What is a human being worth? What is my mission Jesus gives us a better way to be human. And then go back to John chapter 1. And then this is, this is what's mind-blowing. John chapter 14. Let's look at it one more time. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this was written by John. He said, we have seen his glory. So many people saw the same things that John saw, and they didn't see his glory. Right? That should alarm us on some level, that you could physically see with your eyes the miracles of Jesus and totally miss the point, right? What he helps us understand just in those few short words is that there's a supernatural element to faith that you can actually see things with your eyes and not see. So I'm going to use this as an example. So we'll tone it down a little bit. Maybe one of the most underrated Christmas movies out there right now is the Santa Claus 2, right? So anybody ever seen that one with Tim Allen? If you haven't, you should go back and watch it simply for the Molly Shannon. Like she says, man, I feel like it's Christmas. Like if you've seen that one, if not, you should just, you can even watch it during the sermon. I don't care. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good song. Um, Molly Shannon, amazing in that movie. But what I love about the Santa Claus 2, is there, there's a phrase in there that's always stuck with me, and it's not just for Christmas time. Um, it's, it's about the miracle and the magic of believing, and Santa's son's name's Charlie, and he's starting to get in a lot of trouble, and all he really wants his dad to do is to kind of show off his power so that everybody can see him, you know? And there's a phrase in there where he says that believing is seeing rather than seeing is believing. Believing is seeing, right? So take that back into John chapter 1. There are all kinds of people that did not see the glory of Jesus Christ. They saw all of his miracles. They saw him raise people from the dead and their eyes could not see who he is. But then there's this wonderful verse towards the end of the gospel of John. And I hope that this brings you encouragement. It says, 
He's, he's talking to Thomas who said, if I don't put my hands in his side or I can't put my fingers like in the nail hole prints on his hands, he says, I'm never going to believe. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And then Jesus pronounces this blessing. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So if you are here this morning and you have not physically seen Jesus, but there's something about you that has seen and witnessed his glory, if there's something about his beauty and his majesty that draws you in, Jesus says that you are blessed, right? Believing is seeing. And so this is where we have to move from just the the theoretical and the theological because this and these verses are written so that we would believe, so that we would have the blessing of faith in saying that this message and this story is my hope. It is the only thing that I can cling to. That we can believe and see His glory. The incarnation is about faith and the blessings of faith. So all of those things... God helps us to understand the deepest longings and the deepest questions of our heart. Now, I want to close with this point. The incarnation reveals the fullness of God's grace. Verses 16 through 18. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The grace that is revealed here is a grace that is steeped in truth. It's a grace that doesn't gloss over Um, the depths of our sin or the reality of our brokenness. It's grace that comes to meet us just as we are, but it's a grace that doesn't leave us as we are. It's a grace that reveals the character of God that is both holy and just and doesn't just sweep under the rug the reality of our need for a Savior. It's the grace that says, I'm going to come into the world and provide that Savior. Tim Keller once again helps us. He says, the claim that Jesus is God also gives us the greatest possible hope. And it means not just hope for the world despite its unending problems, but hope for you and me despite all of our unending failings. A God who was only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together, that we, that we will be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with Him. A deity that was an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. The biblical God, however, is infinitely holy, so our sin could not be shrugged off. It had to be dealt with. He also is infinitely loving. He knows that we could never climb up to Him. So He has come down to us. God 
had to come himself and do what we couldn't do. He doesn't send someone. He doesn't send a committee or a report or a preacher to tell you how to save yourself. He comes himself to fetch us. Christmas means then that for you and for me that there is all the hope in the world. So God is simultaneously holy and full of grace. Grace and holiness meet in Jesus Christ who becomes flesh for us, full of grace and truth. And the incarnation reveals the fullness of God's grace. Now, there's a phrase in there. It says grace upon grace. It literally means grace instead of grace. Grace in place of grace. Grace on top of grace. And it draws this picture of the Old Testament and Moses and the law that grace was revealed even then. So this, this helps us put our Bibles together, right? That, that there's real grace that's revealed in the Old Testament. So I mentioned the tabernacle earlier where It was real grace that God would make a covenant with people and he would invite them into a relationship. And even though the law revealed how much they needed a savior, it was a real way that God welcomed his people into relationship with them. That's, That's grace, but there was a limit to that grace. And then Jesus comes into the world and gives grace in place of grace, grace on top of grace, so that now for the people of God, there is no limit to our access to the presence and the promises of God. We no longer have to stay at a respectable distance. We get to draw near with our hearts full of faith and we get to experience the fullness of who God is. So it's the incarnation that says there are no limits on our experience of God. There are no boundaries. We get to draw near with all that we are and experience His nearness and His kindness and His mercy. And that mercy will change us. That's a grace that comes from His fullness. A grace that will not be um, extinguished. It's a grace that you will not exhaust. And so let that speak to the problems that you brought into this room this morning. That from His fullness, you can receive grace in place of grace. No matter how many times you you've blown it. No matter how many times you don't think that you have it together, no matter what your shame story says about you, God says you receive because of his fullness, grace upon grace. So where do you need grace to be placed on top of grace today? Where did you walk in here unaware of his activity, unaware of his commitment to you? It's at that place that grace upon grace is meant to meet you and change you. This means we don't have to be in the shadows, that we don't have to stay far off, that we get to draw near and receive grace upon grace. And that kind of message, listen, you're going to leave here. You're going to interact with real people, with real stories and real need. And they don't need just a hug or a pat on the back. They need a tangible expression of God's grace. They need people to look them in the eye and say, you are valuable to God. Your story matters to him so much that he would come into the world. And then he needs people to come alongside them and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a tangible picture of that for you. I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to point out his grace every step of the way. Not because I have it all together, but because I don't. And he meets me every step of the way. 
I receive grace upon grace. And so that means we never move on from our need from grace. And we celebrate the reality that grace isn't just a concept or even just power. That grace is a person and his name is Jesus. And he's here for us. And he came to draw us near to God so that we can experience freedom and forgiveness and joy. That's the miracle of the incarnation. This is His kindness to us. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There is no lack in God in His grace for us. So that means we can come to Him just as we are. And that's what we're going to do as we continue to worship. Let's pray. God, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for His finished work on our behalf. Thank You that from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I pray that I pray that as we taste grace through the table, that the weight and the sin that clings so closely would fall off and that there would be a lightness of forgiveness that comes over us as your people. I pray that we would receive your gift, that we would receive your presence, that we would receive the fullness of your kindness towards us. I pray for people that feel lonely, that you would draw them near. For people that feel abandoned, that you would reveal your nearness. For people that feel hopeless, I pray that you would impart hope. Do all of these things because of your continued posture towards us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.